Once upon a time, in the country of windmills and solar roofs, there were two small villages. One was called Feldheim, the other Wilpolsried. They were so small that many people didn't know about them. But then something happened and guests from far, far away traveled to those villages. And international newspapers started writing about them. Uh, hello, this is the New York Times. Do you speak English? Want to know what happened? Let me take you back in time. These two villages began making all of their electricity from renewables. They made more than they could consume, so they exported the rest. And then they started on renewable heat and battery storage. And these little villages became hotspots for things like blockchain and microgrids. And they lived happily ever after. Or did they? Okay, are you here to ruin everything? No happy ending? Well, even fairy tales have wolves and witches. So what are the wolves and witches here? First, let's welcome our listeners to episode three of the Community Renewables podcast with Craig Morris and... Rebecca Freitag. And this background music doesn't fit welcoming anymore. Can we get rid of that? Sure. So, in this episode, we have no policy analyst, just grassroots people. I wanted to tell the stories of all the great community renewables groups in Germany. So did I, Rebecca. And I originally wanted to start with Yunda, Germany's first bioenergy village from around 2006. And so I contacted them and discovered that they had been taken over by a local utility, More investments had been needed because stricter rules for biomass had been implemented, and the citizens had lost confidence because their feed-in rates, uh, which they had gotten in 2006, they would run out after 20 years, so around 2025, and they basically just felt like, okay, maybe the project is coming to an end. Now, to be clear, some people view this technology skeptically. Uh, this is a mixture of energy crops, so they were growing corn locally. And by the way, they uh, don't just use the fruit of the corn that we eat. They use the whole plant and harvest before the fruit is even ripe. And they would mix up these energy crops with local wood waste and manure. Uh, but nonetheless, there was a debate nationwide about uh, six years ago between energy crops competing with food crops or as the Germans called it, Teller oder Tank. So crops for your plate or your gas tank. Right. Yunda started off as a pilot project at a nearby university. I think it was Göttingen, where researchers were looking for a community that wanted to participate. So this was maybe around 2005. And the folks in Yunda, which has a population of around 1,000, They showed the most enthusiasm. Local project pioneers went door to door asking people if they would switch to district heat so that a biogas unit could be built. And a critical mass was achieved. And you have to imagine this. 
people were asked if they would give up their oil heating systems, which were probably still working, and switch to district heat. The sidewalks would need to be ripped up to lay the pipes, and you'd need a new connection into your home. So it was a lot of work. And by the time I visited, around 2013, Yunda was established as the first bioenergy village in Germany, and they attracted visitors from around the world, including places like Japan. Just like Feltheim and Wilpertsried from our fairy tale. And when I called the Yunda Project to see if they'd speak to me on this podcast, the first guy I reached was a farmer who supplied some of the biomass, and he simply said no thanks. And the other guy I reached was the project manager um, who basically managed this project on the side alongside his, you know, main job. Yet another community renewables project people did in their spare time. Yes. And he also declined to be on the show, but we did talk for about an hour. And he said that the community had been divided over the issue of whether they should reinvest to keep the project alive. Some people wanted to try to keep the project in their own hands, and some just wanted to sell to the big utility. And so he doesn't want to talk on the record. And it was really sad. We have lost one of our lighthouse projects in Germany. But what made me even sadder is that there were no reports about this. No one seems interested. And so no one knows that Yunda is no longer a community bioenergy village at all. Not even Hans-Josef Fell knew until I told him. He was on our last episode. Yeah, he is the father of Germany's Renewable Energy Act. Exactly. And here's what he said about Yunda when I told him. I have been to Yunda many times. I often celebrated their success and supported them. It was a great example of community investment and citizen engagement, which are the basis for the fast growth of renewables. It's sad to hear that a bigger player has taken them over, but it shows the direction we're headed. So, no one knows that Germany's first lighthouse community bioenergy village has been sold. Right. And instead of interviews with these folks, we just have more silence. But Craig, you chose to have another project on the show, the county of Rhein-Hunsrück. Why is that? Basically, I just want to spread the wealth. Rhein-Hunsrück has also started getting a lot of attention, and it deserves more, and you'll hear why in the interview. So what do we need to know before we get started? We'll be listening to Frank Michael Uhle. He is the climate action official in the county of Rhein-Hunsrück which is about 100 kilometers west of Frankfurt, close to the Rhine, 
and in the low mountain range called Hunsrück. And they face issues typical of rural areas, such as an exodus of young people. And Rebecca, during the recording, which we did over Skype during the corona lockdown, the connection was pretty bad, lots of dropouts. So keep that in mind when you hear us laughing at the end. I will. Uh, well, without further ado, here's Frank Michael Uhle. It all started as part of the Agenda 21 process after the climate conference in Rio in 1992. Its slogan was, Think globally, act locally. Community Agenda 21 working groups were then established. By 1995, a group of local citizens had built their first community wind turbine. When it went into operation, everyone went out to see it, and people had tears of joy in their eyes. Today, we have more than 270 wind turbines producing enough electricity for 100,000 households. Do people like having so many wind turbines? Yes, because more than 90% of the turbines stand on public property. Municipalities get revenue from these leases. We're talking about 7 million euros annually. That's great for public coffers, but do citizens ever see any of the benefits? Yes. One example is the LED swap campaign. Citizens were able to bring us their old light bulbs and get new LED lamps in return. And there are other small things like that. Such things were part of an energy conservation campaign, in which every household got time with a professional energy auditor for free. And depending on what the auditor found, there were also other incentives, such as 100 euros for the purchase of a new refrigerator, freezer, washing machine, or dryer. People got kickback off 100 euros per unit if the unit was A++++. And up to 6,000 euros was offered for building refits. You could also get up to 30% of the purchase price back if you invested in a solar array with battery storage. People who did so save, on average, around 70% of their power bill. And I really wonder if there is any better way to get citizens involved in and benefiting from the energy transition. But all of these energy campaigns are just one way the money was reinvested in the communities. Some communities have used the funding to finance what we call the community van, in order to provide at least a minimum of public transportation in these rural areas. Kindergartens are also financed in this way, as are extensions of fiber optic cables for the Internet. Funding is also provided when a community wants to develop its own district heat network. You can even have tourism promoted with this funding, as we did with the Gayalai suspended footbridge. When construction started, that community had 14 empty buildings, and now it has none. People have moved into town and started investing, and so the benefits take many shapes. 
and the important thing is to ensure that everyone can take part, rich and poor, landowners and tenants. You don't even charge admission for this footbridge. How does the money come in? Are we talking about people spending the night in hotels and having lunch in town? We are talking about the town of Mörsdorf, with a population of around 800. It used to be a part of what was called Sommerfrische, or summer freshness. People from nearby cities would take summer vacation in the countryside. They walk in nature, have a good meal with a glass of wine or beer in the evening. They were very relaxed afterwards. But gradually, everyone started flying to Mallorca or wherever. And today, people no longer speak of Sommerfrische at all. And so some locals began talking about building a suspended footbridge, like they have in the Alps and Himalayas, as a way of bringing Sommerfrische back. We originally hoped to have 130,000 visitors each year, but we are now at more than double that. The bridge has now been open to the public for four years, and more than a million people have visited it. The bridge itself doesn't cost admissions, but the parking lot does, and this revenue alone pays for the project. And as I said, all of the 14 buildings that were empty are now all in use. We have a Thai restaurant, a tart flambe restaurant, bed and breakfast establishments have been opened, and there is a beer garden. But the best example is the baker. He was reaching retirement age, but was unable to find anyone to take over his bakery. Now, a new lady is running the shop, and you can get fresh bread there even on Sunday. If it wasn't for the extra tourism, this town would no longer even have a bakery. If I understand correctly, the idea for the bridge is actually a few decades old, but it wasn't until the wind farm provided all this revenue that the project became possible. Is that right? We have long had sort of town hall meetings that we call town refurbishment programs. And at one of these meetings, three people, they became known as the bridge dreamers, proposed the bridge, like the ones they have in the Himalayas, so we could bring Sommerfrische back. In the beginning, no one believed them. Skeptics said you would not get more than 6,000 people annually. That's the usual number for the hiking paths we have around here. With all the planning and environmental protection, the bridge costs around 1 million euros. The EU provided much of the funding, but there was still a certain amount that the community itself had to cover. I believe it was around 260,000 euros. Before the wind farm came to town, the municipal budget didn't generally have even 5,000 to play with. Then, two wind farms were built in the area, and City Hall now gets around 200,000 euros from the land lease annually. 
So the wind farm revenue was enough for the initial investment, and the parking lot revenue covers all of the ongoing expenses. Is a wind farm automatically community energy if it is built on public land and the revenue for the lease is paid to City Hall? What we're doing here is community energy, yes. Let me put it to you this way. Historically, rural areas provided cities with food, raw materials and workforce. In the future, we will also do that with energy. And we will keep some of the added value in these rural areas. As I said, 90% of the area for these wind farms is public forests and agricultural land. And the main wind farm developers are municipal utilities from nearby towns, such as Mannheim and Aachen. They will never have all the space they need to generate enough wind power within their own city limits. If they develop the project, but we also benefit, it's a win-win situation. The cities get the green energy they need, and we have the wherewithal to manage the demographic change we are undergoing. So I think that in general, what we're doing will work anywhere. It sounds like most of the wind farms in your area were developed by municipal utilities from nearby cities. Do you have any wind farms where citizens were the main drivers? Yes, I already mentioned that the first wind turbines were set up in the mid-1990s by a group of citizens, around 300 people in a limited liability company. All of these people were locals, and all of them are still involved in the project. They were also the first ones to repower their turbines, meaning that the older, smaller ones are taken down at the end of their roughly 20 years of service life, and replaced by more modern, larger ones. In this case, the new turbines were around five times more powerful. But I would also call what I describe above community energy as well. Municipal utilities are often 100% holdings of the cities they serve. Citizens also get to decide what happens with that revenue as well. So I would say that's also a form of community energy, just an indirect one. And so, long story short, uh, the local people like having so many wind turbines around. Yes, and I think one of the keys to high levels of support is allowing everyone to participate. Everyone who can see the turbines also has to feel that they are benefiting from them. And that's why these programs were set up to benefit rich and poor. And people who don't own property also see benefits. And when you do that, you get high levels of support. I can even give you a statistic that demonstrates this. People who serve as mayors in these small towns 
don't get any money for their work. But people think they have done such a good job that some of them have even won 97% of the vote in recent elections. Yeah, it's a level you usually don't see outside of communism. <laughs> These mayors have surpassed their targets for the energy transition, and the towns that have done the most have made themselves ready for the future. People are not leaving because they can't find jobs anymore. There are no empty buildings. People from big cities are buying homes here, that have a district heat connection and fiber-optic internet. We have speeds of 300 Mbps. The problems we're having with this Skype call are not our fault. <laughs> Crack, had you ever heard of Sommerfrische? I hadn't heard of the word, but I was aware, like, that's how tourism really started. So in France, a place like Etretat, um, it's along the coast about, I don't know, 90 minutes from Paris. And so the rich people would just get a little place there and, and go out for the summer or maybe even just for the weekend. Um, in Germany, Zult, that's the way it started uh, because it's close to Hamburg. And I'm from New Orleans, and the 1% in New Orleans, like in the 19th century, they had a summer home in St. Louis, and so, you know, they would disappear uh, in the summer, escape the sauna heat in the city, and uh, just take the steamboat up. And, and what about you? Had you ever heard the word Sommerfrische? No, I haven't, but I like the idea behind it. The idea of finding adventures or having holidays in your home country. I think we don't necessarily need to fly away for a few hours to find relaxation or the next adventure. Young people, I mean, yes, we are also good at traveling the world, but we are also making this a new trend and Corona is intensifying it. Young people are showing off their latest discoveries on Instagram by using ha hashtags such as hashtag hiking, hashtag wanderlust, And the Geierlei Bridge seems to be one training hiking destination as well. On Instagram, this hashtag has more than 30,000 posts. These are photos with young people on that bridge. Okay, I'll check Instagram for hashtag Geierlei. And if you, dear listeners, want to check that out but can't spell Geierlei, it's in the show notes. Um, so, Rebecca, did you hear what he said about Agenda 21 and think globally, act locally? Yeah, that's what you talked about last episode. Um, and to give you a little background, the Rio conference in 1992, that's also called the Earth Summit, was the first international conference that connected the two major topics of environmental protection and development. And the result of that was the Agenda 21, And that was actually the first attempt to accelerate sustainable development. So we can say it's basically a predecessor to the sustainable development goals that we have today. The aim was for every community to have their own Agenda 21. And I think this was a pretty progressive and vital step for sustainable development. Unfortunately, what I have seen at UN conferences on sustainable development recently is that local actors don't get the stage and the focus they deserve. Sometimes 
they don't even have access to those conferences. Interesting. I've never attended a UN conference, so I wouldn't know. Uh, but Rebecca, you have also been to Gaialai. Uh, did you see the bakery? Yes, I, I was on that bridge and I was eating the bread from the bakery on a Sunday, by the way. I posted my photos on Instagram. And it's funny because if I'd only known that I would get to speak about this village in a podcast two years later. Um, yeah, but what I can say is that the atmosphere, it was really like a fairy tale. It, uh, it reminded me of Lord of the Rings. But what I've learned from this interview is that we always talk about clean energy and the climate, but local people affected by these projects, they talk about the rural exodus, about a new relationship between urban and rural. Community renewables give rural areas back a task, a, a purpose, an identity, something they will be respected for. And when I was standing on that bridge and I saw the wind turbines on the horizon, it made me feel it was a new win-win. Oh, sorry, I mean, of course, win-win situation. Ha, ha, ha. In our next interview, we speak with a project quite similar to the one in Jünde, Biomass in District Heat. And we'll be listening to Stefan Bayerle, who manages the heat network. Let's set the stage. Stefan Beile is from Lariden, and Lariden is a small town in Bavaria with around 200 inhabitants. They use local biomass and waste to co-generate electricity and heat, and they distribute the latter to local buildings. Beile will mention the phrase das Geld des Dorfes dem Dorfe, which is basically profits made off of the village should stay in the village. Craig, that has a long history. Yes, it's a century and a half old, and it was the founding motto of German cooperatives, which we'll come back to on a later episode. Okay, and Bayerle will also talk about land consolidation or Flurbereinigung in German. Craig, what do you remember about Flurbereinigung? Well, first of all, it was before my time. Thank you very much. <laughs> so around 1950, um, tractors and other farming machines were just becoming a thing. Uh, before World War II, not everyone had one. But by the 1950s, you weren't a cool farmer if you didn't have a tractor. Yeah, tractors were the new black. Exactly. And for tractors to be used efficiently, you need a large individual land parcel, not multiple small ones. Over the generations, plots of land had become fragmented. So you owned a few acres, but maybe across several plots, not just one. And the process of redistributing small plots to create bigger single fields was called Flurbereinigung, or land consolidation. And this is relevant for Lariden and other areas because these plots were private property, but people were forced to negotiate trades. Some people left the process feeling they had gotten the short end of the stick. So whenever a new infrastructure project comes to town, these old wounds open up again. Right. And this also happened in Kaiserstuhl, by the way. We talked about this in the previous episode. That's where Germany's energy transition was arguably born. There, people had been told they would have to move entirely from the farming Rheingraben, the sort of valley along the Rhine River, 
into the Black Forest because their land was to be industrialized. This was in the mid-1970s, so these farming communities remembered Flurbereinigung 20 years later, and all the old wounds opened up again. So you might say that without land consolidation in the 1950s, we might not have Germany's energy transition today. Without land consolidation in the 50s, solar might still cost 50 cents and not five. A butterfly flapping its wings. Chaos theory. Bingo. All right, so this is blowing my mind, and we are probably losing our audience. Maybe we should get to the interview. Now, here's Stefan Bayerle. Okay, Lariden is, grob gesagt, zwischen Nürnberg und Stuttgart. Lariden is located roughly between Nürnberg and Stuttgart. We had a pretty good overall development, lots of agriculture. But then gradually in the 1950s and 60s, people began looking for jobs elsewhere, as was the case in the rest of Germany, as agriculture became less lucrative. And as more and more people began working elsewhere instead of together, there were fewer community projects. Slowly, people simply lost touch with each other. In fact, the last big community project we had was drinking water supply, and that was probably around 1954. This continued into the 90s. There simply weren't any additional community projects. But it all started up again when things got bigger and needed to be more efficient. So the farmers built a shared agricultural equipment hall. That went really well, so they began to buy tractors together and share them. Two individual farmers had also built their own biogas units in the meantime. Other farmers began to realize that doing something similar would be a lot of work, and the risks were great. So five farmers met and said, why don't we build one together? A lot of locals laughed about the project and said, that will never work. If you get three farmers together, you have five opinions. So how many opinions will you have with five farmers? Then you have three. <laughs> that sounds about right. But in the end, it went well. After all, these people work together during harvesting season and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And after about a year, these folks began looking into the future to see what else they could do. Was that when the idea for the District Heat Network was born? Exactly. Was it your idea? Actually, it came from the people with the biogas units. Everyone had been asking them, what are you going to do with the heat? And they kept answering, let us finish the biogas units first, and we'll deal with that later. Then they conducted a survey to see who would be willing to connect to a district heat network. And they followed up in 2011 with an official presentation event. When I visited you, you showed me pictures of the citizens themselves helping out. There were people digging ditches with shovels. Did everyone see this hard work as fun? Yeah, it was so a renaissance, sag ich mal. 
How should I put this? It was kind of a renaissance. Three of us spearheaded the project, and we asked a guy from the neighboring village. They had done something similar in the previous year. So we asked him how they had gone about it. And he said, look, it's pretty straightforward. Somebody needs to get up on stage and give an inspiring speech. And the other two guys in our project looked at me and said, you could do that. You could give an inspiring speech. So the pressure was really on me. I fell back on an old slogan that German savings and loan banks had used in the 19th century. I don't know if you know this slogan. Das Geld des Dorfes dem Dorfe. Or profit from the village for the village. That pretty much sums up the motto of the cooperatives. I put that slogan on the biggest poster I could make, held up by a makeshift wooden frame, and used it as my backdrop. And I pretty much told everyone what I just told you. We are a farming community. We used to work together, and we're losing contact with each other. But we could do a lot together. Then I broke down the costs for the entire project, but also pointed out where we might have some money if we took things into our own hands. And I really tried to stress the point that we would all have to work together. We would need to put infrastructure across private property, and we didn't want some people to benefit more than others. That's why we pursued the idea of a cooperative. You also told me during my visit that the entire process had opened up old wounds. What did you mean by that? Yes, there were some very bad wounds from the era of land consolidation. Fortunately, the three of us who were spearheading the project were from out of town. I mean, we had been in the village for 10 years already, but we hadn't been there during the land consolidation decades ago. So we personally were more or less seen as neutral. The three of us had to navigate all of these old conflicts anyway. But because we were considered neutral, we were able to act as moderators. And maybe I should also add here that the three of us were well respected in the community. The locals no longer saw us as out-of-towners, so the timing was also right. If I remember correctly, you also had one major buyer of this heat, a refugee complex. Is that still there? Yeah, it's still here. How many refugees live there now? That fluctuates. Sometimes we have 50, sometimes we have 200. And the community accepts this refugee complex? Yes, they have integrated themselves well. They received a lot of support, of course, but they're also friendly people. There really weren't any problems. Obviously, there were some initial concerns about abjectly poor people possibly leading to more theft and more crimes, but we really haven't seen that. In the end, it's a good thing. Craig, why did you ask about the refugee complex? 
Laridin is a conservative rural community, and I think people from cities may have certain prejudices about such people. In this case, this community was housing refugees even before large numbers came to Germany a few months after my visit in 2015. And locals were already integrating these migrants, even in their district heat network. What Stefan Bayerle says reminds me of one aspect of indigenous worldviews. You know, they say, you younger brothers, by which they mean us Westerners, you have forgotten where you come from, forgotten your ancestors, your identity. Everyone has a place and a task in life. And we are so mobile today that we lack our roots. We have lost our connection to the place where we live. And that disconnection enables the destruction of our environment. We only protect what we love. We only love what we know and have a connection to. And the same applies to the social aspects in communities. But I'll put a link to a book on this in the show notes, but it's in German. Well, what's it called? If I translate the title, it's called Kogi, How an Indigenous People Inspires Our Modern World. Okay. And what you just described as indigenous is also principally conservative. Know where you're from, who you are, and respect that identity. Okay, what do we need to know for our next guest? Her name is Melanie Ball, and she is a member of the all-women's cooperative Windfunk. And she told me that there are several all-women's community co-ops for renewables. Windfang is not the only one. So, Craig, do you think gender issues are important in the energy sector? I guess so. I have a limited perspective on gender issues because I'm a guy. Don't worry, it's not your fault. It's a steep learning curve, but I'm working on it. So, Melanie Bell will mention auctions. Auctions were opened by the German government a few years ago. They are often seen as the opposite of feed and tariffs, but they basically provide the two things feed and tariffs do. A fixed price for the green electricity you sell and, secondly, priority grid access. The difference is that the government doesn't set the prices in auction. It sets the maximum volume that can be built. But we will get into the policy stuff in a later episode. So, without further ado, here's Melanie Ball. Um, so, how did this organization get started? Um, well, it was back uh, in the beginning of the 90s, or maybe even end of the 80s. There were some, basically, um, women engineers realized that even in these political movements of the time, it was always the men who took over like the most interesting tasks <laughs> mm -hmm. okay. and so they decided why not form a cooperative and why not build windmills we mm -hmm. want to do it ourselves then it was basically by chance that i think it was some uh, conference where they were talking about their plans and then one other female student passed by and said oh actually my dad has has uh, some grounds you could build a windmill on mm -hmm. um, <laughs> he lives up in Schleswig-Holstein and there's enough space so that was the first spot where okay. the first windmill so they started off with one wind turbine but they later went on also you had a solar array put on a building yeah. in Bonn too right yes what was that yes 
We also have solar power installed on the roof of the Women's Museum in Bonn. It was the members of, of our cooperative themselves who actually went up onto the roof and installed it ah. with screwdrivers, yep. etc. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they are engineers, many of them. Okay. And they know they know how, how to do, do it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And all of this was still under the Feed-In Act of 1991, right? Yes. And so when the EEG comes in 2000, did that speed things up for you? Did it make things... E Have you done more since then? The last three really huge windmills that we built in Hamburg, they came after this act, I think. Yeah. Mm, okay. So um, it took about five years, I don't know, to to plan uh, Schneewittchen, <laughs> Snow White, Snow, as okay. it's called. Um, that's who, a turbine? Yeah, that's a turbine uh, that went into production in 2014. Mm -hmm. yeah. We did also buy windmills that had been there already mm -hmm. in Hessen. How big are you right now? We are a group of about 300 women all over Germany. And I think this hasn't changed much um, over the past years. From the beginning, we said that we don't want the dividend to go below three or four percent, which was what you got at the bank, like for your savings. And so, of course, the more people you are, you have to share this um, <laughs> income okay. amongst yeah, 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 yeah. more people. And so that was also one reason. Yeah, I don't think I've ever gotten three or four percent from a bank, but okay. Yeah, I think in the 90s that was the case I, back then. I, I had money in Germany in the 90s I don't think I got <laughs> anyway so they also for many years they didn't make much um, advertisements for their uh, cooperative and then only when they started a new project and you need new money uh, to pay for this new turbine then mm -hmm. they acquired more but I mean yeah. if you have members all over the country I mean you were just talking about you know, Snow White is in, mm -hmm. uh, in, Hamburg. in, in Hamburg. Okay. Within yes. the city limits. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's one of the few turbines there then. Um, Absolutely. But we built, actually, we built the only wind turbines who were built in, uh, 2018 in Hamburg, I think. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and you are in Bremen, yes. which is, I, I think about an hour south mm -hmm. of, of there. And so if you have people all over the country, do you build all over the country? Um, I think we are focused on northern Germany because these, this group of women who formed uh, the cooperative, they were studying in Hamburg mostly, I think. The majority of the members, as well as most of the turbines, uh, they are in the north of Germany. Like when was the last turbine that you built or that you finished? That was, yeah, basically last year or the year before last. On the in the same grounds where the Snow White is standing, we mm -hmm. have two other ones, Honey and Nani. <laughs> Do all of your wind turbines have names? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they have female names. Okay, okay. <laughs> the first one even had purple color on the wings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you have a feeling for whether the acceptance levels have changed over the years? Did it used to be easier to build yeah. wind farms and now it's harder? Or what's your experience? I would say so. So in the beginning, like in the 90s, there was no, there were no problems. So now with these recent projects, I mean, of course, they are much bigger turbines than the ones from the 90s. Mm -hmm. But um, Well, what kind of struggles did you have? 
there was a court case. So it's uh, it's not us who were taken to court, but the the authorities, right? So oh, okay, um, so they so you, your permit was probably challenged or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The permit was challenged and on yeah. what on what grounds? So some people who lived in, <laughs> in the surroundings of uh, these windmills said that their house might lose value. Mm-hmm. How close uh, were you to them? One and a half kilometers or so. It might not be the real reason, but um, it could be that some people earn money with it and others don't. And I think, yeah, mm, okay, it's very individual and you have to deep dive into the structure of the village, etc., to find out actually who is against who and yeah, <laughs> who is yeah. on which side, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You've just completed some uh, turbines. Do you have any that you're planning now? No, we're not planning any new projects at the moment because um, it was a huge effort to complete these. You all have normal jobs, right? This is Yes, not a, exactly. It's not so, a full-time job for anyone. Yeah, actually, if you build windmills this size, I mean, those were like 3.3 megawatt mm-hmm. um, <laughs> turbines, like the yeah. normal size nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's actually nothing you can do adding on to your day job. The three women um, who are on our um, the board. How do you say, executive board yeah, yeah, yeah. for the process of, of this project, they didn't do much more else. Right, right okay. <laughs> and actually... What we are focusing on now is internal things. Like, as you noticed, many of us are uh, above 60 or above 50 at least. And um, if we want to go on with this cooperative, we need to get new blood into it, (laughs) kind Mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we are now thinking about how we can organize it like for the next decades because Mm -hmm. the ones who are the directors now, they don't want to do it any longer. They've done it about 20 years or so. Yeah, there was like a generation, I think, that came up in around 1990, and of course earlier. And and I think kind of, I mean, we hear a lot about the Fridays for Future generation coming up, Mm -hmm. but I guess if you look at sort of the 30 to 40-year-olds right now, Mm -hmm. they, did they, I mean, we miss them somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think some daughters of um, <laughs> members of ours are also members. But yeah. not all not all of them. Not like all the yeah daughters. Becoming, not all of them yeah. have daughters. Okay, <laughs> Many have well, sons, so they can't become. Members. Oh, we can't we can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> but to, but to come back to my question about uh, the plan, so yeah, uh, I mean, so you have a generational issue, but yeah. are you taking part in auctions? Uh, no. No, we haven't. I think we, until now, we just didn't have the time because we were working on those projects that mm-hmm. we just <laughs> that we just had. That was enough, yeah. Yeah, we have thought about it, and I think one of our uh, board members has made some calculations if it was possible. But with these um, auctions, we don't really think um, it's possible for a small cooperative to, yeah to really succeed. Why can't you succeed? I think about 10% of the full like building costs you have to um you have you spend like before actually starting to build. Mm-hmm. So with this project that would be like 1 million euros, mm-hmm. you can't just yeah, start planning and spend a million euros if you don't know if you actually will succeed with right. the building of that windmill. It's just you don't with the cooperative, I mean, we are just normal people. We we don't uh, start ten projects and then maybe one of them 
will succeed uh, right. like a, a big company could do. What can politicians do to make the business market better for Windfang? I think it's quite absurd that citizen, normal citizens have to compete with big companies uh, in this business. I don't think that's that those are fair conditions. Of course, they have made some changes for uh, citizens' energy projects, but those are still not, not working. really working. Yeah. Well, how would they do that? Do you just want to be outside of auctions, or what, what would you like? I think that would be one option, yeah. Here's an idea, because this is what uh, I'm hearing from the other people in, in the podcast about cooperatives. Uh, they're basically saying that cooperatives should be able to sell to their yeah. own members. Yeah, exactly. And, and you could call that this behind the meter or eigenverbrauch. Yeah. And so is that what That's you're That's true. Proposing? So it was, it was um, like when all the cooperatives started uh, back in the 90s, it was one idea to, to be able to sell the energy to the actual members. Mm -hmm. You would kind of have to become your own power provider. Yes. And you think you might do that? I don't know what the next generation <laughs> brings, but that might be one, one thing, yeah. So if we have some young people listening who want to uh, get into the business, they should uh, approach you with a concept of, of making Windfang an all-women power provider. Yeah, why not? Okay, can, yeah. can men buy your electricity then? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about that at the, at the next uh, General Assembly, okay? <laughs> yeah. So, Craig, you should have asked her whether the protesters against her projects are usually male. Ah, good idea. Uh, it would be interesting to know whether all women co-ops face more opposition from protesting men. Hmm. Something for our social scientists in the audience to follow up on. Let me give you some numbers on women in energy. According to a global survey by the International Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, in 2019... 22% of people working in the overall energy sector are women. But in renewables, it's 32%. That's the study entitled Gender Perspective, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I wonder, would the world be a better place if women ran it? I recently saw an article pointing out that countries run by women are doing better in the corona crisis, if that's any indication. You see... And by the way, what about our own gender quota? Not good. 20% uh, of our guests are women. Uh, next time, I will pick our guests. Okay. But let's come back to Irina's numbers. If you have a closer look, most women of these 32% work in administration. And what keeps women away from this sector? Well, according to the survey, in northern and European countries... It's mainly about social and cultural norms, while in other regions, it's a lack of skills and training. Seems like we have to work more on social norms and maybe community projects are one way forward to a better access for women into that sector. And maybe more women need to study things like engineering. In Germany, only around a tenth of mechanical engineering students are women, for instance. Yeah, and therefore we need to reconsider our norms in society concerning gender and education. Anyway, 
back to Melanie Bell and Windfunk. I would be interested in how they will reorganize the inner structure to attract more young people, or whether this depends on the non-existing business model because of auctions, and that would be, in my eyes, the wolf in our fairy tale. Yeah, maybe they won't pass the business on to a new generation. I'm starting to get the impression from these interviews that German community groups will continue their current projects for the 20 years of feed-in tariffs and then just retire. Oh, that's sad. There were also other questions that I wanted to ask. Are these projects initiated by citizens or local politicians? I think it's hard to make a distinction between citizens and politicians at the local level. Even mayors in small towns of a few thousand people are unpaid. It's volunteer work. And if you propose a wind farm, you sort of automatically become a local politician. And what about political parties? Dieter Mensen was from the Greens. Are these projects typically green? Actually, most of the ones I know are driven by Christian Democrats. And that's not really surprising. After all, rural communities vote conservative. So we should expect rural projects to come from conservatives. I can think of lots of examples. and in, in fact, I wrote a whole book about this. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Right. Uh, people like Peter Amels. Uh, he became a nationwide leader in wind power. And he's a card-carrying member of the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, which is Angela Merkel's party. La Rieden um, also consistently elects conservatives. And I could mention lots of others. If you look at the projects in our episode, I was wondering... Uh, is community renewables happening only in rural areas? And what about cities? So um, I did some research and actually there is some citizen participation for renewables in cities, but the challenges are different. I mean, you don't own your property most of the time, so you cannot decide about having a roof, a solar roof or not. But you have some roof groups with shared projects And you also see citizens are buying back municipal utilities. You find more shared e-mobility. And finally, I really like the name Snow White for a wind turbine. Craig, what would you call your wind turbine? Um, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, not even after hearing what she said. Uh, so it's interesting that you immediately asked yourself that question. Maybe men and women do think a bit differently. Indeed. Well, I would call mine Pusteblume. Ah, okay. That's, uh, that's dandelion in English. A good name for a wind turbine. But you know, honestly, I think I would probably just call mine a 2.3 megawatt Enercon or whatever its technical name is. Just like all the other guys in the podcast. So the guys I recorded actually say things like the turbine manufacturer's name and the, its rated output, so things like 1.5 megawatts. And you and me agreed to cut out most of that because it's boring. boring. Maybe there's a lesson here. If you want people to identify with your turbine, give it a name. Yeah, show it some love. Um, but otherwise, what are your main takeaways from this episode? So first, a community renewables project is so much more than just one important driver of our energy transition. It brings back local value creation, a new sense of community, a tool against rural exodus, 
and a living example for democracy. Second, even in modern times, we can't get rid of unhappy endings of wolves and witches. And finally, we in Europe still have a lot of work to do in our, on our social norms until women's share in working in renewables will increase from 32%. You have been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local community renewables project LICO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014 till 2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, German website Telepolis, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! And our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan, Tricolor. Check the show notes for links to their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. With additional music this week from Dian Key and Vortex. So, Craig, what is the solution to last week's riddle? Okay, so you remember the situation, a PowerPoint presentation called Magic Michaela that reads your mind. Right, from Professor Yara's website. Who will be on a later episode. Now... Magic Michaela shows you four cards and asks you to pick one. And then it shows you another four cards and says the card you picked wasn't one of these. Right, so how does it know? Basically, it always wins. The second set of cards doesn't contain any of the cards from the first set. Ah, Magic Michaela is cheating. On a law professor's website. Unbelievable. So, do you have a riddle for us this week? Yes, and this one is from Car Talk. It was a call-in radio show in the U.S. The hosts were auto mechanics, and people would call in to ask them what might be wrong with their cars. It was really funny because people would make sounds describing what was wrong with their cars. Something like, brrr, brrr, brrr. Yeah, or, gluck, gluck, gluck. And environmentally, it was also interesting because over the decades, the hosts became really critical of cars. And they always had a puzzler in each show. A puzzler, okay. So this puzzle also has cards. We're going to alternate taking cards from a stack of cards. You can take one, two, or three cards from the pile each round. And the winner is whoever picks up the last card or cards from the table. And as it gets to the finish, the game gets interesting. So let's say there are six cards left. I pick three, and you pick up the last three, and you win. So obviously, if there were six cards left, I wouldn't take three. But the question is, is there a strategy you could use that would guarantee that you would win? All right, everyone. If you know the answer, drop us a note on Twitter where I am Rebecca L. Freitag and Craig is PP Chef. 
And we'll hear the solution next week. Bye-bye. You have to say bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>